But we're going to read, uh, begin with Luke chapter 9, the story of the transfiguration. Verse 28, Luke chapter 9, 28 uh, to verse 36. But we won't be ending there, we'll begin there, but we won't end there. So it'd be good if you had the word of God with you. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter and John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to be bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter, sorry, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. May the Lord bless his precious word to our hearts. And and if you have some sort of uh, bookmark, you may want to open you and have it placed at Ephesians chapter 5 as well. That's if you have some sort of uh, bookmark in your Bible. But we'll begin here at Luke chapter 9. I want to share something with you about acquiring a vision for a church fellowship. This was a, a time of the year in my experience as a pastor when I would try and challenge the church to have a renewed vision for the winter's work and for the year that lay ahead. Time about September time, but after the holidays were over, the time when everything would start up again. And I always try to bring some kind of message of renewed vision for the Church of Jesus Christ, and especially for the local fellowship. And what we find in the Word of God is that Jesus does an evaluation of churches. And having a new vision is it's a bit like an evaluation. Isn't that what Jesus does in the seven churches in the book of Revelation? He looks at each of these seven churches and evaluates them and, and seeks to bring some kind of direction to them. And gives them praise where praise is due and, and gives them some kind of understanding of where the Holy Spirit wants the church to be in the book of Revelation. And the same is true of Paul when Paul is actually writing to these churches that he has been in. And some of the churches, most of them he started himself except the church at Rome. He started these churches and, and he wants to write to them because he's been hearing things about them. And he, he kind of evaluates them and he wants to instill a, a fresh and renewed vision into these churches. And so we find in the word of God that a renewed vision, an evaluation, whatever you like to call it, 
is very much on the agenda in the scriptures that we read. But what I want to say to you today is the church cannot progress on a borrowed vision. The church will never progress on somebody else's vision. It's paramount that the community of God's people (coughs) catch the vision for what God wants to do in the fellowship and this area. It never proceeds on a borrowed vision from somebody else. Here is where the church is going. The leaders need to be saying to us each time, each time of the year, here is where the church is going. Do you want to come with us? Here is where we're going. For many churches you see there's such a thing as a a holding operation going on. We're holding things together and that's fine. And the ministry I found in my experience in Dunoon for example, the ministry became a maintenance ministry. I remember saying to the church, folks it's time that I went away on a sabbatical. I need to get away because we are not going anywhere. We're not moving anywhere. And I could be the one in in the way of it. And I want to go away for three months during the year. I didn't take them all together. I went and I said to this other minister that I knew, tell me about two or three churches or maybe four churches in England that are really progressing. I want to be part of them for a couple of weeks each. And he told me about four different churches in different parts of England. And I spent two weeks in each of them. And after I came, after this three month of being away that year, I came back to the church and I said to the leaders of the church, I know exactly where I'm going. And I shared the vision I had and I'm asking you, are you coming with us? And I asked the church the same question. I know where I'm going and I'm asking you to come with me. And it was wonderful when they came back and said, Pastor, we're going with you. Because I was at that stage, nine years down the road, I was 13 years in the church. And I said to, I was saying to myself, if this church doesn't move with me after me having this tremendous vision of being away for three months, then I need to be going somewhere else. But God gave us four more wonderful years of And that was when the church moved from where it was to some other place. And and the church just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was just amazing what God... I nearly missed that. Nearly missed it. Because uh, if I hadn't said to the church, this is a maintenance ministry, this is a holding operation, and we're not going anywhere. And I could be the one in the way. And we had a wonderful ministry after that. We don't want a maintenance ministry. We don't want a holding operation. We want to catch a fresh vision of what God is saying to the church. Now you'll know that in the word of God, there's more than one way of planting a vision, isn't there? You find in the case of Peter, it was on the rooftop that God gave Peter some, a tremendous vision of this sheep coming down from heaven with all kinds of things that the Jew would normally not eat. And God gives Peter this vision because he wants him to reach out to the Gentiles. Peter was sort of caught up with the, the Jewish community. And God wanted him to stretch out beyond the Jewish community to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And he gives him this vision on the rooftop. And just after that vision of the sheet coming down, 
I would say God's saying, whatever has been cleaned, you, you eat. After this vision came to Peter, a knock comes at the door and says, we need to go to Cornelius. I want you to go to Cornelius because this man is searching for God. And people, Peter was able to go into the home of a Gentile. You know no idea how difficult that would be. No Jew would enter into the house of a Gentile. And here is Peter going into this house of the Gentile and the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his family and his servants in the way that happened at Pentecost. The Gentile Pentecost, if you like. How did Paul get his vision? It says that in the night he had this vision of a man standing there. A man from Macedonia said, come over and help us. And Paul couldn't understand why the Holy Spirit would not allow them to go into Troas. The Holy Spirit prevented them moving ahead. But this vision came to Paul of this man of Macedonia said, look, will you come over to help us? And because of that vision, the door of the gospel opened to Europe. Quite remarkable. And of course there's John the Apostle. How did he get his vision? It says in the scripture, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And there's wonderful revelation of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Different ways in which God planted a vision in Peter and Paul and John in the book of Revelation. It's quite remarkable how all that is different. But you know this. Before you can get a vision, there's something else we need to ask. What kind of preparation do you have to make? What comes before the Lord plants a vision in his church? And the technical term for it is a prerequisite. What's a prerequisite of a vision? What comes before? And look at it here in Luke chapter 9 and 32. This is the, the first part of what comes before a vision can come to our lives and to our church. Look at Luke chapter 9 and verse 32. It says there that Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. I want you to focus on these words this morning. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And here is Peter, James and John. They are discovering that to have a vision has got something to do with seeing his glory. John says, we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We find that in John's Gospel, chapter 1 and 14. But I think you'll agree with me that part of the meaning of having a vision is to see something of his glory and to reflect that in the church and in the community. You notice in verse 9 on the story of transfiguration that Peter and the others nearly missed it. Just like I could have missed it. Had I not gone away for the three months and got a fresh vision of the work of God in that church. They nearly missed it. Luke records that they were very sleepy. And it's only when they were fully awake, the verse says, that they saw his glory. One writer says this, that one of the penalties of living sleepily is that we miss so much of what is happening. But before we can start a fresh vision of his glory, God gives us the opportunity to wake up. He wants us to wake up. And we need to ask ourselves if we are awake 
to what the Lord is saying to this fellowship or any other fellowship? Are we awake to what's going on around us or is it just a haze? You see, the Bible is full of alarm bells for sleepy Christians. One of the most wonderful passages in the Bible about that kind of thing is Proverbs chapter 6 and verses 6 to 11. It says there in Proverbs 6, 6 to 11, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in slumber and gathers its food at harvest. And then listen to what follows. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. Is that not graphic? Wake up you sluggard. That's how the Bible puts it. When will we arise from our sleep? This is a very real sense in which the church can slumber while the work is going on. That's strange isn't it? The church can fall asleep while the work is going on or ticking over. For many, as long as the services continue, as long as the organizations function, a reasonable number attend, everything is going well. That's what Jesus had to say to one of the churches in the book of Revelation. You have this reputation of this going on and that going on. It's an exciting place and this happening and that happening. But you are dead. Boys, oh boys, that's stuff, stuff. One of the greatest preachers in my lifetime, the one that I love to hear the most, and he's in his 80s now, is Jim Graham. He's just a powerful man of God, a powerful preacher. And he wrote this tremendous book, which you ought to try and get sometime. And it's maybe an older book now, but it's a book on the church. You know what it's called? The Giant Awakes. And giant is the name he gives to the church. The giant awakes. And in that book he tells about another writer called Rita Snowden. She was a famous writer many years ago. Wrote many books and many stories. And in one of her books that Jim Graham quotes, the book When It's When the Two When We Two Walked, he quotes a story from Rita Snowden and a friend. They went on a walking tour and one Sunday they came to a village church in the south of England and they went in to worship and they found three in the choir, twenty in the congregation and the vicar. And Rita describes the scene. She says, hymn, psalm, prayer and a quiet murmuring voice of the vicar tended to take my thoughts out of the windows into the morning sunlight and over the fields and far away. The pity is it was all so harmless, it was so gentle, it was so proper. There's nothing there, she said, to remind us of the young man Jesus who strode the countryside and, and talked with the country people of Galilee in burning words. The kind of man Jesus who leaves you restless ever afterwards until you find his God and learn to call him Father. She says there was none of that there. All so quiet, so gentle, so proper. Nothing to make you restless. How easily the church can put itself to sleep. Jim Graham talks about a drowsy peace. Have you ever heard of a drowsy peace? Think of these words when they were fully awake. They saw his glory. <clears throat> Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and 14. It says there, <clears throat> But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it's the light that makes everything visible. And that's why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, 
rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. You see in Luke chapter 9 we learn we need to be awake to see his glory. In Ephesians chapter 5 and 14 we need to be awake to receive his light. Have you got that? And it's so interesting to see how these two thoughts, the thought of glory and the thought of light, they come together in Isaiah 60 and verse 1. What does Isaiah 60 and 1 say? Arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Look more closely at Ephesians 5 and 14. Here we see the sleeper and the dead are terms applied to the same person. It seems that some are living in some kind of dream world. A world a thousand miles from reality in church life. And Paul's reference to the dead, to arise from the dead, describes those who just don't know what's going on spiritually or what God is saying. Notice in Ephesians 5 and verse 14 that the sleeper is not inactive. If you read the verses before verse 14, you would find there that Paul is exposing those who are engaged in the unfruitful works of darkness. He's challenging, first of all, the pagans to waken up to the fact that nothing done in secret will remain in secret. The light will reveal it all. There are those who are fully awake to the world's ways, aren't they? Oh yes, they know the way around the places of sin. They know about betting. They know where to find partners for the weekend. They know what to watch to stimulate the flesh. But Paul is also wanting the believers to wake up and rise from the dead. He doesn't want them to go back into the lifestyle that they've been delivered from by the power of God's Spirit. Paul knows there's always the old associates or those friends that you may have that want you to get back into the things that perhaps once you were delivered from. But the Bible teaches when you become a Christian, you become a new creation. The old has passed away and behold the new has come. Some years ago I was looking through my books on revival. And inside one of the books was a booklet. <clears throat> and this booklet was the address of Billy Graham that he gave to the Assembly Hall of Church House Westminster in March 1952. And here's what Billy Graham said in that booklet. I'm praying for the kind of revival in America in which men and women will come back to the teachings of our blessed Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, in the power of the Holy Ghost. I don't care a hoot for the man who will stand up and make a public confession of Christ and put on a great piety, then go back and live the same old life. And that's what Paul is teaching here in Ephesians 5 and 14. He wants the pagans to rise up and know Christ. He also wants believers to stop being lulled into drowsiness. And to all such, he says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He is issuing the bugle call of God, the trumpet call of God to the body of Christ. Rise up, rise from the dead. Now we need to be careful here. The temptation is to think, well, I'm the one that's responsible. I need to rise up from the dead. I need to awake from my sleep. And that's true. But what the Bible is actually teaching us, you can't do it on your own. This actually comes from the call of God upon your life. It comes by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to rise from the dead. We're not robots. We have to exercise faith. Wasn't that what happened when Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, I want you to stretch out your hand. Jesus had healed the man. Healed the hand. 
but he wanted him to exercise faith and to stretch out his hand. What Paul is saying in Ephesians 5.14 is that we needn't remain in our slumber or our deadness that Christ can revive the church by the power of the Holy Spirit that dead bones can live again. And the Lord is here for all those who will hear his call and receive and respond to the power of his Spirit. So what have, we been, what have we been learning so far? We've been learning that to have a vision for a fellowship means we need to wake up to see his glory. I need to wake up to receive his light. We made the important point that glory and light belong together in Isaiah 16 verse 1. We've been learning that to wake up and rise from the dead, it's a divine work. We exercise faith, but it's the call of God upon our lives. It's that responding to the Holy Spirit that causes us to wake up and rise from the dead. Our part is to exercise faith and respond as the Spirit leads. We can't allow ourselves to be lulled into a sleep of death by being involved in the unfruitful works of darkness. Finally, let me say something about the words in Ephesians 5 and 14. Christ shall give you light. In the Bible, light speaks of three things. First of all, it speaks of knowledge. We used to say in church life at times that in some meetings there was more heat than light. And what we meant by that was some folk were getting pretty hot under the collar, but they hadn't a lot of wisdom. They had a lot of understanding what they were on about and they were getting hot under the collar. It's not, we want, don't want the heat, we want the light of Christ, the light of God's will, the knowledge of God's will on their individual lives, on the life of the fellowship. I don't know about you, but I need the light of God's knowledge on my life. The light of the knowledge of God's will. We do need guidance for the way ahead. It says in Acts 26 and 23 that Jesus came to proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. He came to proclaim light. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. For God, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There it is again. Light and glory come together in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. Light speaks of knowledge. Folks, do you know him? Do you know my Jesus? Do you have the knowledge of God's will for your life, for the fellowship here? Because light speaks of that knowledge. But it also speaks of purity. That's perhaps the thought behind Isaiah 9 and verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. When Christ is our light, we're talking about holiness. We're talking about purity. Years ago in Baptist church life, we used to sing an old hymn. Maybe you've sung it in your church experience as well. It says this, eternal light, eternal light. How pure the soul must be. When placed within thy searching light, it, it shrinks not, but with calm delight can live and look on thee. There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. One writer has said this the price of purity is high. But, the, but impurity is dirt cheap. The price of purity is high. 
but impurity is dirt cheap. Christ shall give you light, the light of the knowledge in knowing his will, the light of purity in living his life. And then finally, it also means joy, the light of joy. Doesn't Psalm 34 and verse 5 put it so well? Look to him, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Some other versions of the Bible have looked to him and be radiant. But it's meant to have that, that radiance in their lives. We're meant to have that in their lives. A joy that points men and women to Christ. It's the discovery that in his presence there is fullness of joy. It's sin that's the kill joy, not Jesus. True joy is like those glowworms we were talking to the children about that we saw in America a couple of weeks ago. True joy glows in the dark. Wouldn't it be something if today we let the Lord restore the joy of our salvation? That the light should come in as the light of the morning in all its radiance. Could it be that the world has yet to see radiant believers in its community? Lives that have been given over to the Lord that despite the difficulties, and there are many difficulties we face, difficulties in family life, difficulties in our health, difficulties in our local community, in our workplace, our own individual disappointments, but despite all that, we will go out in joy, says Isaiah 55 and verse 12. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. Instead of the briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Folks, do you want a renewed vision for this fellowship? And before that, we need to come to realise that it's when we're fully awake we'll see his glory. Do we want a renewed vision for this fellowship? We need to realise that when the believers woke up and rose from the dead, they saw his light, they received his light. They saw his glory, they received his light when they woke up, when they rose from their deadness. That light speaks of knowledge and knowledge of his will. That light speaks of purity, the purity of his life. And that light speaks of joy, the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Listen to this folks. I'm, first, I'm finished. You don't need to go out. As you came in. The Bible says. You will go out. With joy. You need to go out in joy. Be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills. Will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field. Will clap their hands. This is not wishful thinking. This is the prerequisite of a vision. Before you can have a vision. I don't know what the vision is for the future and this coming session for the church here. But I know this. You need to be awake. We need to be brought out of our drowsiness. That drowsy peace that Jim Graham talks about. You need to rise from the deadness. And Christ shall give you light. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen and Amen.